0: As uh, just an introductory remark, both for the teachings this morning and also just for the state of our world right now, I'd like to say that the broken, fallen nature of the world that we are living in, it just continues to press in on us more and more every day, doesn't it? I mean, about the time we think we are beginning to make some progress, something else happens to kick us back down into the ditch. Uh, some want me to comment on the things that are happening in our society and in the world, and uh, my question is, which things? I, I don't even know where to start, and I don't personally have answers and solutions to this stuff. Uh, I, I'm, I'm as dumbfounded as, and as shocked as everybody else. What should I choose to comment on, to advocate for, to speak out against? There are so many things. And is that how our time should be spent during our brief time together on a Sunday morning? It would occupy all of our time easily. We all felt the year 2020 would go down in infamy because it was so awful. And then 2021 came along and distinguished itself as being even worse. We hoped with 2021 in our rearview mirror, things would get better, and then 2022 has come and shown us that things can get even worse. Even with all of the disturbing and heartbreaking stuff that has been happening, I remain hopeful, though, but it's not a hope in humanity's ability to solve our problems. We can't agree enough with each other on the simplest and most obvious issues to work on fixing them, much less the more complicated and messy things. My hope is in Jesus Christ. And that may sound cliche to some, but we need new hearts, new natures, new minds, a new purpose, a new authority to lead us. We need King Jesus to bring salvation to our world. He is who I hope in, and I cry out, save us, Lord. Well, Matthew chapter 18 is where we will be studying today, and it contains several teaching passages by Jesus which are about how we are to interact with one another as his followers. And although these passages can each stand on their own, they are also related to each other, other, and they build on each other, giving us a more complete picture of the kind of people that Jesus is calling us to be. Here's a quick summary of what we find in this chapter. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus teaches us to be humble and to find our meaning in the Lord rather than in the pecking order games of this world. In verses 6 through 9, Jesus teaches us about the seriousness of sin in our life. In verses 12 through 14, he teaches us about how precious every single one of us are to the Lord. In verses 15 through 20, he teaches us how to seek reconciliation with our brother or sister who has wronged us. And then in verses 21 through 35, Jesus illustrates for us the importance of being forgiving. Toward one another. Well, let's begin in the first verse of Matthew 18. It says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Ah, the big question asked among the people of this world who is the greatest? Who is the most important? Who deserves the most honor? Who is first? People struggle with this question the moment they start having interactions with other people. I mean, if you watch a class of first graders, you will see them vying for position with each other. They are supposed to get in line. And left to themselves, they will race to get to the front of the line. And then they push and they shove each other to gain and maintain their spots in that line. Human beings carry on this same kind of behavior, even as adults. We just get more sophisticated in how how we do it, but it's all the same game. Here we have the disciples of Jesus, the Twelve, wrestling with this same question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And surely, they will each be at or near the top of the heap. I mean, they are the twelve. And who among them is the greatest and will occupy the place of honor over the others? In verse 2, Jesus called a little child to him and placed the child among them, and he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So Jesus, he uses a little child to answer this question about who's the greatest. Children in the ancient world were not looked at in quite the same way that they are in our own Day, They were the most powerless and status-less members of society, possessing no rights, no privileges, no influence. Children, they were obviously loved and cared for by their parents, but they had no power or privilege. They were completely dependent upon their parents for their well-being. And it's important for us to keep these things in mind as we read through these passages several of them which mention children today, so we can get at the meaning of the passages. Jesus, he says, we must change and become like little children, in verse 3, and take the lowly position of a child, in verse 4, to be great in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Now Jesus is not saying that this is the way we climb the status ladder and gain fame and influence in the kingdom of God as if he's simply making some changes to the rules of the game. Instead, he wants us to stop playing the game of status and one-upping each other. A child is dependent on their parent for their well-being rather than their own ability to achieve status. Their status comes from their relationship with their parent. And it's not something that they even concern themselves with. In a similar way, our well-being and status should come from our relationship with the Lord rather than our achievements and who we are in front of. We're to get out of the game and not concern ourselves with who is in front of us. We're to become like little children, humble and secure in our relationship with our Heavenly Father, from who we then get our value and well being. When we're like that, then we serve people with pure motives. We aren't trying to impress anyone. We aren't trying to put someone under obligation to us. We aren't trying to earn something. We aren't trying to increase our status. We aren't seeking affirmation and value from others. We get our wholeness, our purpose, our fulfillment, our worth from the Lord, not this world. In this next passage, Jesus talks about the seriousness of sin. So in verse 6, he says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. A little child, as we've noted, was a person with the least amount of status in society, but causing a little child to sin and turn away from the Lord is so serious in the eyes of the Lord that it would be better for that person to have a large millstone tied around their neck and be thrown into the depth of the sea. Now, the kind of millstone being talked about here is the large, heavy stone that a donkey or an ox would pull to grind grain. It's not the small, grinding stone that a person would used to grind grain by hand. Yeah, that that one would be survivable, wouldn't it? Now, having one of these large millstones tied around our neck and then be thrown into the depth of the sea would mean certain drowning. It would drag us to the bottom. The Lord is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows, it tells us. And so Jesus, he reminds us that the Lord looks out for the weak and the defenseless and the powerless and those without status. The point Jesus is making here, though, is that leading anyone into sin is a very serious thing. Verse 7 Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Temptations, enticements to sin, stumbling blocks are part of the world that we live in. We can't get away from these things in this life. But woe to the one through whom these enticements to sin come, causing people to stumble. They will be held accountable. And then in verse 8, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation. What he says here should not be taken literally in that sense. If it were, I would venture to say that all of us here would be without hands, without feet, without eyes. And the sad truth about human nature is, is that we would all still be struggling with sin, even without hands or feet or eyes wouldn't we? In Mark seven twenty, Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Sin can't be removed by simply cutting off body parts. Sin is in us. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that sin in our life is a very serious issue and we should expend great effort to avoid it. Anything in our life that is causing us to sin should be removed before it destroys us. And on a positive side, the life that Jesus offers us is so much better than anything we could ever ever have in this life that we should make every effort to enter into that life. Well, why does Jesus want us to not sin? I mean, I'm sure there are many reasons we're not even aware of. But one reason which is easily observable in our own life is the damaging effect the sin has on us. Every time we sin, we weaken ourselves. Sin breaks us down on the inside. And if we continue to do it, eventually it can destroy us. Jesus is not just being a goody-two-shoes. He knows about the devastation that sin causes in lives. He knows about the insidious nature of sin. He knows about the degradation of our souls that sin causes I mean, if we need evidence of this, just look at the news feed over the past couple of months. Sin in human beings is responsible for all of this horrid stuff. Verse 10. It says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven. Always see the face of my Father in heaven. Jesus again uses little children to make his point. In this world, the rich and the powerful occupy the front rows. In the kingdom of heaven, it won't be like that. Instead, the smallest and the weakest and the overlooked will be in the front row. The kingdom of God has a completely different set of rules and standards than this world. They don't operate in the same way at all. Verse 12 says, What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. The sheep that has wandered off in this parable can be someone who is a follower of Jesus, a disciple, a Christian who has strayed away from the Lord and is living a compromised life. It can also be a person who has not yet made a commitment to be a follower of Jesus. Either of these kinds of situations can be plugged into this parable. The big idea is that the Lord is a rescuer. He loves the lost ones, and He goes after them. In this parable, our Heavenly Father is the one being talked about What is true of the Father is also true of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd in John chapter 10, you might remember, who lays down his life for the sheep, risking his own well-being for the good of the sheep. So we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all being rescuers. The Lord leaving the 99 sheep who have remained faithful in order to rescue the one sheep who has lost their way, it doesn't imply that he cares less for the faithful ones than the wandering one. He loves them all. They're all precious to him. That that is the point being made here. They are all precious to him. He's not willing to lose even one. He loves us all. He's not willing to lose any of us. He seeks to rescue each one of us that wanders. Even those thought to have the least value and influence in this world, our Heavenly Father is unwilling to lose. Every one of us is precious to Him. Someone might ask the question, well, can a sheep wander too far? that the shepherd, the Lord, will consider them a lost cause and not go after them? The answer is no. There are no lost causes. This is the very mission of Jesus. In Luke 19, 20, it says, For the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. You are not so far out there he won't come after you. You're not too lost that he can't find you. In this next passage, it gives us guidance for seeking reconciliation with a brother or sister in the Lord who's wronged us. So in verse 15, The opening words of this verse 15 of this passage, it can be translated two different ways, based on the original Greek manuscripts that are used. It can read, as we find here in this main text of the NIV that I'm reading from, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. The alternate way of translating it, which is pointed out in a footnote in the NIV Bible here, and is The way the verse is actually translated in the 1984 version of NIV, the ESV, the New Living Translation, the New King James, the New Revised Standard, the King James, and a number of others, is like this. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault. This way of translating the verse makes better sense within the context of the passage and is the way that we will look at it as we work our way through it. So this is a situation where another believer has sinned against you in some way. It's an issue between two people, one wronging the other. Now, before looking at what we're supposed to do if another believer has sinned against us, let's talk a little about when this should be carried out. See, because we obviously don't want to be confronting one another about every little offense that's made. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. That is not the way we should be with one another. A huge measure of grace and forgiveness should be extended to one another as the regular course of interaction between us. Colossians 3.12, Paul wrote, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, Sometimes, even after we have been exercising grace and forgiveness, and we're being honest and humble about our own stuff, there can still be times when another person has wronged us in such a way that it needs to be dealt with, as described here. Now this passage is talking about believers. And some of this stuff can be applied with unbelievers, too, where it makes sense. But obviously, when it involves the church, unbelievers don't recognize the authority of the church in their life, so some of this stuff is not applicable at all in that situation. Well, here's the progression that we're to follow when we have been sinned against by another brother or sister. It says, first, go to the person and talk with them about the issue just between the two of you. It's unfortunate that this is too often the last thing we do. Instead, we talk with all kinds of other people about how this person has wronged us rather than going to that person. And when we do that, it's easy to slide into gossip and slander, isn't it? Jesus tells us to go to the other person and bring up the issue just between the two of you. what kind of approach are we to use when going to this person? Well, we can find a little bit of help for that in Galatians 6.1, where it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. He says, you who live by the Spirit, we need to be walking in obedience and fellowship with the Lord ourself. We need to have the heart, the mind, the attitude, and the motive of Jesus Christ. We need to see this situation the way that he sees it. We need to climb down off of our righteous high horse and come in humility. He says, restore that person gently. We should do it with great gentleness kindness, humility. And I want us to notice that word restore. Our goal is to be restoration, not punishment or revenge or paybacks or humiliation or some other unworthy motive. Instead, our intention is to be healing and restoring the relationship. If a one-on-one conversation fails, then we're to take two or three others with us and address the issue. The two or three other people should be carefully chosen. They should be spiritually mature people without any other agenda than the ultimate good of the person being confronted, the healing of the relationship, and the will of the Lord being done in all of it. They should be people who can be trusted to keep what's discussed just between the people who are present. They should be people who will have a gentle and humble approach. They should be people who are neutral and open-hearted toward parties involved. It may be hard for you to believe it in the moment, but you may not be entirely right. You may have wronged the other person. Good witnesses will be open-hearted and neutral enough to call us out on our own stuff too. That's what we want. Well, if talking with the person with the two or three witnesses fails, then we are to take the issue before the church, it tells us. What does it mean to take it before the church? Well, there's not a simple, single answer to that question. It depends on the sin and the people involved In practical terms, we want to go to the church leadership first and speak with them about the issue. That conversation will then help to determine what kind of next steps might be taken. There could be a situation so severe and indisputable that the whole church fellowship would need to be informed about what this person has done and so forth. But that would be a last resort option. But given the the litigious culture that we live in and the ease that people have of moving around to different churches, it makes it very difficult for a church to carry out the kind of authority and discipline that's outlined in the Bible. And I'm just being real about it. Someone can get called out on their sin and They'll just go to another church. Or they'll want to sue the church for slander. We do the best we can under the circumstances that we have to work with. But uh, there are limitations of what we can do just given the culture we're in. Now, if the person is committing an obvious confirmed gross sin and refuses to acknowledge it and repent even after being confronted by the church, then that person, it says, is to be excluded from our fellowship. But even this severe action, if it's taken, the hope even in it is that it will cause the person to repent and come back. We always want to seek reconciliation and restoration and forgiveness and wholeness for people. Now we've talked very briefly through these steps, but this is not a simple issue. There's not a thing where we're just going to... Well, there you go. That's what we do now. Things don't play out the way that we expect them to. People are complicated. Relationships are complicated. And things are rarely what they first appear to be. We want to enter into this whole process with tremendous caution and humility, fully leaning on the Lord for help. Verse 18... It says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. I think these verses should still be taken in the context of this passage that we have been talking about, and in that way, the basic idea expressed here is that when the church when the church is operating in obedience to the Word of God, following Jesus' directions and the leading of the Holy Spirit, then the church is acting with the authority of God in these kinds of situations, and we need to respect that. And finally, this parable at the end of the chapter, it helps illustrate and bring together some of these main ideas that are taught in these passages that we've looked at in this chapter. And it begins in verse 21. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? See, so he's been listening to what Jesus has been teaching. Okay, well, how many times should I forgive the person that sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter appears to have learned the important lesson of forgiveness. It's underlying much of the teaching that Jesus has been giving in this chapter. But his idea about forgiveness, it doesn't go far enough. And the same can be said about us and our ideas about forgiveness, too. C.S. Lewis rightly observed everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. See, when we're all very big fans of being generous with forgiveness until it's ourself who has to do the forgiving. That's when conditions for receiving forgiveness come out. That's when limits are placed on forgiveness. When we have to do the forgiving, Peter, he thinks he's being very generous by offering to forgive someone up to seven times. And Jesus' answer to him in verse 22 I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. He doesn't mean 77 times literally. In other words, is what he's saying is there should be no limit, no limit to the number of times that we forgive someone. How many times has God forgiven you and me for the same thing? Again and again and again. And then Jesus tells a parable to help illustrate his teaching, beginning in verse 23. It says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to settle, as he began the settlement, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Or someone who... "'Owed him several million dollars. "'Since he was not able to pay, "'the master ordered that he and his wife "'and his children and all that he had "'be sold to repay the debt. "'At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. "'Be patient with me,' he begged, "'and I will pay back everything.' And the servant's master knew that was a promise that he couldn't keep. He's in so much debt, there's no way he could ever pay it back. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, a few hundred bucks. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how your heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. When we consider the huge debt of sin that the Lord has forgiven each of us of clearing our slate, setting us free, adopting us as his children, and promising us paradise, it's unthinkable that we would withhold our forgiveness from anyone for anything. That's the point of the story. a Christian, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, a person who's been rescued and redeemed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, needs to be a forgiving person like their Heavenly Father is a forgiving God. That's who we are now. That's who we are now. And that's who we are becoming as we allow the Holy Spirit to grow the new life of Jesus in us. We don't play by the same rules as this world does anymore. We're to be humble, forgiving people, secure in our relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ, which frees us to forgive and hold nothing back. Colossians 3.12 again. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your good word to us today. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness that you have forgiven us of so much. Lord, as your children, we pray that you would give us a forgiving spirit toward all people, those who have wronged us, who have hurt us, who've injured us, who've insulted us, who've belittled us, who've taken us, taken us for granted and taken advantage of us unfairly, Lord. All the people who have wronged us in any way, we pray, God, that we would be forgiving people, those who seek forgiveness from us, receive forgiveness from us. That we would walk in the footsteps of our Heavenly Father. Lord, make us those people. I pray that you would bless each one here today, Lord. Fill each one with your goodness, with your mercy, with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.